0: Our guest today is Peter Harrison, he is the Australian Laureate Fellow at Queensland University in Brisbane and serves there as the director for the Center for History of European Discourses. This is going to be an American discourse. The first thing to note about Peter is that uh, he is really quite well degreed. He holds a Bachelor of Science from Queensland, MAs from Yale and Oxford, a PhD from Queensland, and a DLIT from Oxford. At Oxford, he was the Andreas Iteros Professor of Science and Religion. That is, until the lure of the old soil brought him back to Brisbane and to Queensland. Uh, The the focus of uh, Peter's research has been on the historical and philosophical connections between science and religion And to that end, he is the author of several extremely well-received books, the latest of which I'm quite happy to say was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2015, uh, The Territories of Science and Religion. Uh, Many people have written on the subject of the relationship between science and religion. Uh, Those writing from the perspective of religious studies often do not have a nuanced understanding of science and its procedures, while on the other hand, those those scientists who are writing from that side about the character of religion, such people as Dan Dennett, Richard Dawkins, our own Jerry Coyne, have often displayed a a sublime ignorance of the intellectual and social characteristics of religion. Peter, I'm sure you'll, as you'll perceive, uh, from his talk, gives each side its due and does so with a perspective from the antipodes. His presentation is entitled "The Religious Origins of Modern Science," but that is followed by a question mark. Peter Harrison.
1: I'd like to thank the Lumen Christi Institute and Thomas. Good for uh, inviting me, and uh, I think this, without uh, further ado, we'll go. Um, as Bob has mentioned, much of my work over the past 20 years has been devoted to the question of the emergence of modern science in the 20th century sorry, the 17th century. During that time, I've developed four basic themes in relation to religious influences on the emergence of science. One of these is to do with the role of the Bible, the way in which it was read, its changing religious function, and its status as an authority um, in the spheres of both religion and science. A second theme concerned the way in which new literal readings of the fall narrative both gave legitimacy to an emerging scientific culture uh, and shaped the new experimental approach to nature. A third theme related to theological conceptions of laws of nature initiated by Descartes and developed by Newton and which provided a new understanding of the way in which God interacted with the natural world. And fourth and finally, the way in which religiously motivated challenges to aspects of Aristotelianism, particularly his teleological understanding of both persons and things, made space for alternative scientific accounts. So I've, I've lectured on these themes on a number of occasions, and I'm going to return to some of these themes in the present lecture. But what I want to start with is some general historiographical questions about what it means to talk about the, religions of, or, of the religious origins of modern science. What's the nature of the question? What would a good explanation look like? And I'm going to go through these um, basic points Uh, Okay, just making sure they're there. So we start then with this question about explaining modern science. What does it mean to explain modern science? Now, when we talk about the origins of modern science, what is it that we're trying to explain? Uh, What would count as a good explanation? And what would count as evidence in favour of a particular view? Let me start with an example of the kind of explanation that I'm not going to offer you. Um, So we have here uh, a a graph taken from someone's website. I think, as you can see, the name of the the website is uh, nobeliefs.com. So it's not an entirely reputable source. Uh, And I've always wondered what the units of uh, scientific advance on the y-axis are, whether they're metric or imperial. But um, at any rate, the kind of explanation being offered here is that something stops the development of science, that there's a kind of inevitable tendency in human activity to to aim at science, but something stops it. in this case, we can see it's religion that does the stopping work. And so in order to explain how science comes into being, what we need under this model is simply to give an account of what the obstacle was that blocked up the system. Now, interestingly, this view is not simply the preserve of a few nutters who put up their own websites. So, for example, in the the classic 1980s television series, we see a similar view. And you can see it there expressed in the giant gap between the flourishing of Alexandrian science uh, and the Renaissance. So, presumably, nothing happens in Western Europe during this period. Um, your own uh, uh, Jerry Coyne, whom uh, Bob has already mentioned, uh, some of you may be familiar with his work, uh, says something similar, and I'm quoting here, I maintain, though I can't prove this, that had there been no Christianity, if after the fall of Rome, atheism had, per- had pervaded the Western world, science would have developed earlier and be much more advanced than it is now. So an interesting counterfactual. Now, Coyne goes on to say this, quote, Christianity was around for a millennium without much science being done. Modern science really started as a going concern in the 17th century. Why did it take so long if Christianity was so important in fostering science? Now, this question is actually the right one to ask. Why does science take off in the 17th century And why is Western Europe the place where that happens? And so I'll come back to that question. Now, the problem with this approach is not just that religion is credited with impeding science. Let me refer to three other difficulties. First is the broad assumption that there is a kind of natural, inevitable, teleological advance of history towards science and scientific knowledge. What has to be explained in this model is not really the rise of science at all, since that is assumed to be a kind of natural telos of history. The explanandum is why science didn't happen in various times and places and what held it back. And as you can see, as I've mentioned, the response provided on this model, and it's not an uncommon one, is that religion, in this instance Christianity, is the chief hindrance to scientific advance. Second is the assumption that not only is the rise of science an inevitable outcome of the progress of history, but that it's an unquestionable good, that there were no opportunity costs in the development of science, that the trajectory that we see in the modern West from the 17th century on is one that any rational society would opt for given the choice of a range of alternatives. And the corollary here is that if you have a normative commitment to science as the summum bonum of historical development, it enables you to construct a history in terms of good guys and bad guys, to find in terms of whether the phenomena you are interested in lead to the promotion or the neglect of science or what you imagine science to be. Now this normative commitment to the idea of scientific activity as an intrinsic good cuts both ways, since some have been motivated to give Christianity a role in the rise of science simply in order uh, that, that Christianity might bask in the reflected glory of science. I think that's as big a mistake as arguing that there is an inherent conflict or a perennial opposition between science and religion. So that's not the aim of the talk this afternoon. The third problem with this approach is the implication that science is pretty much the same thing in ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and the modern period. Now, I'll come back to this point in a moment. But my own view is that modern science really only begins to take shape, a distinctive shape, in the 17th century. That shape relates not only to new experimental forms of what we should properly call natural philosophy rather than science and a commitment to the mathematical laws of nature, or that nature has mathematical laws, also to an understanding of science as a collective and long-term activity, and that is to be valued on account of its singular capacity to contribute to the material welfare uh, of the human race. Now, the last thing I want to say in relation to this version of history is that while this particular analysis seems uh, quite simplistic, it has an interesting pedigree the most obvious precedent for this view is the stadial history or the stages of history model that has its precedents. Interestingly, in the Middle Ages, where we have Joachim of Fiore speaking of three stages of history, the stages of the, the, the uh, representing the Trinity. Um, but the more familiar version of this comes from Auguste Kant, uh, who suggests, as I'm sure you're aware, that we move through the societies inevitably move through three stages moving from the religious through the metaphysical finally to the positivist the positive or scientific stage this is this staged view of history is a very common view and we can see it suggests that there's a a natural transition from uh, a kind of religious infancy to uh, a mature scientific approach. And this is argued to be a kind of universal pattern that societies will follow. Early anthropologists, such as James George Fraser, adopted a similar periodization in his classic The Golden Bough, although his tripartite distinction is magic, then religion, and then science. Now, fairly obviously, in such schemes, religion not only plays no role in the emergence of science, its role as an explanatory device is an entirely negative one, something to be gotten over, something to be matured beyond. Now, one of the interesting features of these Enlightenment constructions of history is their indebtedness to earlier Protestant polemics that attribute a negative role not to religion in general, but to Catholicism. So for example, uh, Francis Bacon speaks about the Protestant Reformation as bringing about not only an advance in religion, but an advance in all of the sciences. And thus, in a sense, with this religious reformation, the dam breaks and the authority of Catholicism, uh, its hold over the the sciences and learning generally, is now broken. and you can see for yourself there the obnoxious doctrines and so on and abuses. Now divine providence has ordained that we will be uh, liberated from that. So we find this pattern in other Protestant versions of history. Gilbert Burnett uses the English Reformation as a way of periodi- periodizing history into light and dark phases. We find the same imagery in the the Puritan cotton mather, who similarly spoke of the darkness of medieval Europe brought to an end by the Protestant Reformation. Incredible darkness on Western parts of Europe, revival of letters, it's the Protestant Reformation. So the idea of an age of light was first proposed by uh, supporters of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, we see in this Reformation motto after darkness, light. And as a consequence of this the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, the Catholics were not going to take this view of history lying down, we get competing histories. And so uh, here we have the the famous Lutheran Magdeburg centuries, and opposed to them Cardinal uh, Baronius with his uh, 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 annals, church, church annals. Um, ironically it was and Baronius is attempting to counter the Protestant view that Protestantism brings this age of light. Baronius interestingly is the first to use the, 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 the term dark ages but what he means by it is that a period about which we could know little on account of the lack of historical sources for the period so that it was dark for us not intrinsically dark, dark for us because we didn't know about it. Okay, so to to cut the long story short, when Enlightenment philosophers then come to construct a progressivist history, they already have a model provided for them by Protestant polemicists, um, Protestant critiques of Catholicism. But now what happens is that the critique is applied not to Catholicism, but it's universalised to the whole of religion. So just to give you one example, Condorcet, the triumph of Christianity had been the signal for the complete decadence of philosophy and the sciences. And So here we have this classic progressivist understanding of history, where now religion as a whole, not just Catholicism, is given the inhibitory role. And for those of you who know, who know the origins of the conflict between science and religion myth in the 19th century, where the two key figures are John Draper and Andrew Dixon White, who in their classic works, the history of the conflict between science and religion and the history of the warfare uh, of theology with science in Christendom, set up the, the, the other, provide the locus classicus for the story of a perennial conflict between science and religion. These guys are simply providing a quite specific form of uh, a version of history that has already been laid out going right back to the Protestant Reformation and in its more generalised form um, in Enlightenment conceptions of history. Okay, so to sum up, if you have the idea that human history will naturally progress towards something like a scientific culture. Your historical explanations are going to focus on factors that impede the natural progress in the direction of science. The alternative to this is the view that there was nothing at all inevitable about the emergence and crucially the persistence of a scientific culture in the West. This alternative in in its extreme form is that the emergence of modern science was a consequence of a range of contingent factors And I would argue that among these contingent factors are factors that are specific to the Christian tradition of the West. So my suggestion is that there's nothing at all inevitable about the emergence of modern science. To some extent, it's contingent and unexpected. And in light of this perspective, my argument will be that Christianity provided necessary but insufficient resources for the emergence and the persistence, and this is a really important part, the persistence of modern science. So now I've expanded the boundaries of what I'm attempting to explain, since I think what needs explaining is not merely the emergence of modern science and the distinctive form that it takes in the 17th century, but the persistence of science and its movement to a central position in our culture where it exercises epistemic dominance. It is the way to do knowledge, okay? And it has a status as providing us with a privileged form of knowledge. That also needs explanation. Now, the persistence or consolidation question is important to understand since we do see science or something like it in a range of other cultures. And so we see in ancient Greece, in medieval Islamic civilization, in India and in China, something that looks like science. But the overall pattern in these places is what we might call a boom-bust pattern, where various forms of scientific activity sporadically flourish but fail to consolidate or become long-term features of that particular culture. The the pattern of consolidation, then, is one that's unique to the early modern West. In some, then, when we seek to explain the rise of science in the West, we're attempting to account not only for its distinctive features, such as an experimental approach, mathematical laws of nature, and so on, features that we don't actually see in these earlier scientific forms, if we can call them that, but we also need to explain how it comes to be regarded as culturally important, how it gets to occupy a central place, if not the central place in Western cultures. And the answer to this latter question cannot simply be to do with the intrinsic merits of science, or even to do with its technological payoffs, which in its early stages, in in essence up until the 19th century, were negligible, were minimal. Rather, what we need is an account of how we've come to value science and what it can deliver, value both science and the material benefits it can, and it can deliver. In other words, the, the question of the consolidation of science, or the consolidation of science, requires not just clever people or clever groups of people and material benefits, but a set of cultural ideals that value science and what it offers. And these cultural ideals must themselves lie outside of science. Okay? If we take the comparative case of China, then we might say that while China might have been more technologically advanced than the medieval West, ultimately it was a culture that valued what we might regard as a humanistic education over scientific and technological training. And that's one reason that science is not consolidated there in the way it is in the West. So we're looking not just for smart people doing science we're looking for a set of values that will give social legitimacy and permanence to that activity and my argument is that Christianity is in the initial phases of scientific development in the 17th century in the west going to provide those okay what are some of the ways in which religion might influence science how might religion do this now i'm going to look at i'm going to mention 5 and i'm going to talk about 3 okay Um, So we can talk about the motivations of key actors, we can talk about religious criteria for choosing between various scientific alternatives, we can talk about religion providing the presuppositions that make a particular scientific activity possible, we can talk about ways in which religion formed or influenced methods of investigation. And then the, the last one is the one that I've been talking about up to this point, how religion might provide social and cultural sanctions, the kinds of things that lead us to value scientific activity and that lead to its consolidation. Now, for the rest of the lecture, I'm going to focus on three, four, and five, Um, but I'll comment briefly on one and two. So motivations, this is is dead easy to to work out. Here's Kepler saying, uh, I I wanted to be a member of the clergy I realise that there's something intrinsically uh, uh, religious about the activity of uh, astronomy. Okay? Robert Boyle, this famous image of the priest of nature. So engaging in natural philosophy for Boyle uh, is in itself an intrinsically religious activity. Okay? So it's a very simple point, that key individuals are motivated by religious considerations to become engaged in scientific activity. And indeed, this blend of scientific and theological activity is, is something that's quite distinctive about the 17th century period. Okay, I'm going to move on. As I said, I'll deal with these very briefly. Religious considerations provide us with a criteria for choosing between competing theories. So in the history of science, we encounter things called under- theories that are under, under, underdetermined by the data. What that means is they might be empirically equivalent. They give us the same predictions, but the content of the theories is, is uh, incompatible. So given that they're empirically equivalent, how do we choose between them? Well, in those cases, there might be a variety of considerations, but they are extra scientific. They might be aesthetic, for example. So a Copernican model might be preferred because it's simpler, even though it may not be uh, necessarily superior at the time in terms of the predictions that enables us to make. This illustration here is taken from the frontispiece of uh, Riccioli's new Almagest. Um, and it shows three competing, uh, three competing uh, astronomical theories, the Ptolemaic, Copernican, uh, and what's the other one? The Yes, thank you. Did I say that? A Copernican, the Ptolemaic, and the uh, Tychonic. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Riccioli, who's a Jesuit, uh, writing, as you can see in the middle of the 17th century there, is actually favouring the Tychonic system here. And you might argue that, it, given that it's more or less empirically equivalent to the Copernican theory at the time, right? there's scientific evidence in favour of both and some against both, he has a religious reason for choosing that. This may not seem to be particularly uh, noteworthy in terms of the advance of science. But nonetheless, my point is that we're thinking about how religious factors operate. Here's one way. They they provide one of the extra scientific criteria for choosing between competing alternatives. If we jump to the 20th century, and I'm not going to go into great detail here, but for those of you who are aware of the anthropic fine-tuning of the universe, it looks like the universe is a put-up job. If this is the only universe there is, The physical constants are very, very remarkably fine-tuned to give us the kind of stable universe we need for life to evolve in. It's really a fantastically improbable scenario. So what might be an alternative to a single fine-tuned universe? Well, if there's a very, very large number of other universes in which all of the, the relevant variables have other values, then our universe may not be that special. We just happen to be fortunate enough to live in it. Now why would you choose a multiverse, which seems uh, ontologically extravagant, over a, a very simple fine-tuned universe? Well, one, one reason would be that a fine-tuned universe, a single one, seems for some people to, to suggest that there was a creator who designed the specific variables to have the values that they did so life would be possible. Now, if you want to avoid that conclusion, you might move to a multiverse. Now, I'm not suggesting that religious considerations are the only reasons that you might choose a multiverse over the universe, but here is another instance of the way in which extra-scientific factors, including religious factors, have a bearing on theory choice. <coughs> okay, now, as I said, I'm not that interested in, uh, in developing these, uh, these, these two options in any great detail. I do want to talk about uh, presuppositions uh, and... and and the other two. So I move now to presuppositions. So here the question is, what do we need to assume about the world for science to be possible at all? Now perhaps most obviously we need to assume the intelligibility of nature, that nature is ordered in such a way that permits us to discover its regularities. For the Aristotelian science that largely prevailed up until the scientific revolution in the 17th century, this intelligibility was understood in terms of the well-known four causes, uh, which I won't labor... But a key feature of the Aristotelian understanding was that nature's intelligibility lay in the inherent capacities, powers, and virtues of objects that accounted for their movements and relations. So order was intrinsic to objects within the natural world, This uh, This will change in the 17th century, and it will be replaced by a somewhat radically new conception, a conception of laws of nature, And the laws of nature are understood as operating externally rather than internally. And crucially, they were thought of as imposed upon natural objects directly by God. From the outset then, the the modern conception of laws of nature, which emerges for the first time in the 17th century, was a theological conception. So let me give you Descartes, for example. So here's Descartes in his Principles. And he's understanding how things move. They do not move on the basis of any inherent powers or qualities that they have. That was the older Aristotelian view. Rather, they move because God moves them. And God moves them in a regular fashion. And this is where we get the idea that there are laws of nature divinely imposed on, on, on uh, otherwise inert or immobile uh, uh, corpuscles or, or atoms the laws of nature are universal and they are infinite uh, because God himself has those uh, particular properties um, so they they derive the invariability says Descartes from the fact that God is himself immutable okay so there's a direct link between not merely the fact that there are laws but for Descartes the nature of the laws and the divine nature so English natural philosophers, while well, they didn't agree with Descartes on terribly much. Nonetheless, certainly bought into this conception of laws of nature. So Boyle, again, note, just note that Boyle insists the regularities of nature are not inherent to things, but they are imposed on it by God. Samuel Clarke. Uh, Clarke is perhaps the most able philosopher-theologian of the, of the 18th century. Um, Clark is the, the person who famously engages in the correspondence with Leibniz on behalf of Newton. But again, Clark suggests that the, that the laws of nature take their qualities from the arbitrary decision of God to uh, determine that things will behave in the way they do. And the arbitrary character of the law necessitates empirical investigation of nature in order to determine of a range of possibilities which one God has instantiated and this of course is the Newtonian view so from the preface of uh, the second edition of Newton's uh, Principia the business of philosophy is to determine what laws God has imposed on the world and there's a a subtle dig at Descartes there not not the ones that he, he might have had he had he, um, well, not the ones that we might uh, just guess at. So if we want to wrap up this conception of laws of nature, I'll come back to Samuel Clarke, because he sums it up rather rather well. In the strict and philosophical sense, this is in his, uh, I think this is, oh no, this is his Boyle Lectures. Um, Either nothing is miraculous if we have respect to the power of God, or... if we regard our own power and understanding almost everything that we call natural um, as what we call supernatural, in this sense is really miraculous. It's only the unusualness or the usualness that makes the distinction. So everything is of the same causal order. There's no such thing, he says, as what men commonly call, call the course of nature or the power of nature. It's just God's constant divine willing. Now this is a kind of fateful move because it actually puts all causation at a level... And one of, the, one of the consequences of this, as we'll see, is that, that that single level of causation is capable of redescription in purely naturalistic terms. But the tendency of these English natural philosophers is ultimately to attribute all causation to God as part of a story about laws of nature. Now, OK, so as I say, this is a somewhat... Now, that's a fateful development too. <laughs> <laughs> uh. 't actually have you do, do you ever use a user name it must have made a decision that i'd gone on for too long but <laughs> oh okay that was that was easy um, okay so uh, as i said, so so if you you want to see where this goes that that this is starting to look like the philosophical doctrine of occasionalism that is, is, is associated with Malebranche, but which is, is, a, is a very common tendency in the period. And that leads directly to a Humean understanding of causation. And that in turn will lead simply to a flip where this univocal level of causation, sort of supernatural causation, is simply redescribed as natural. And the laws of nature that were for Descartes and the Newtonians really laws of God, now literally become laws of nature, laws of the natural world. So that that transition takes place uh, essentially. Well, it takes place quite early in in France and in the the 19th century in England. But what we can think about here is if we we still have a conception of laws of nature, um, should we still have that conception of laws of nature if ultimately it relies on a theological premise? So the philosopher of science Nancy Cartwright, who wants to reinstate something like an Aristotelian understanding, natural order, doesn't think there are laws of nature, thinks that actually the theological origins of the conception of laws of nature is one reason why we should dispense with the idea. Now, there are other reasons she thinks. She actually thinks that um, a, a doctrine of, uh, of intrinsic powers is a, it's a better way to go and is more supported by the evidence. But, but it's interesting that the historical component is part of a story about, well, should we still think there are laws of nature? right. Okay, So so that was the second thing. There's a third thing. It's often assumed that modern science gets started by asserting its independence from theological considerations. But actually, something like the reverse is the case. Very often, we encounter scientific innovators making the claim that they're re-Christianizing a natural philosophy that had been tainted by its association with the pagan Aristotle. So Christian commitment provides a justification for critique of Aristotle. Let's assume that the prevailing science up to the 17th century was broadly Aristotelianism. Moreover, the inauguration of the new discipline of physico-theology, now a combination of natural philosophy or physics and theology, um, which for Aristotle was impossible because these were two discrete sciences, This, this now becomes possible, this combination of Uh, bringing together a theological and physical explanation and the marker for that is a new discipline called hyphenated physico-theology. And the other hyphenated discipline that happens is physico-mathematics and that's what Newton is doing. He's bringing together physical descriptions of the universe with, with mathematics. So for Aristotle you shouldn't mix your theoretical sciences. In the 17th century we forget about Aristotle all the bets are off. We can now mix theology and physics Physico-theology is the outcome. We can now mix mathematics and physics, physico-mathematics. In the famous title of Newton's Principia, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Again, quite a new thing. We bring maths into natural philosophy. But all of this is made possible because we are free from the restrictions of an Aristotelian understanding of the sciences. And I would argue that part of what makes that possible um, is the fact that we have we have uh, religious license to criticize Aristotle. Okay. Um, four, methods of investigation. Is that what? Methods of science. Yeah, good. OK. Now, what I want to do here is just to outline some of the basic claims that I make in this, this book, um, the, the Fall of Man and the Foundations of Science, where I argue that post-Reformation Augustinian anthropology, and I simply mean by this is Theological conceptions of the person was used to promote a new experimental approach to the natural order. And the basic argument goes like this. The Aristotelian approach to natural philosophy that prevailed in the the later Middle Ages and the Renaissance assumed that humans are inherently rational by nature, that they naturally seek knowledge, and that our senses and cognitive apparatus are naturally attuned to the way nature operates. And under the right conditions, that will yield veridical knowledge of the natural world. Now for this reason, Aristotelian natural philosophy was based on generalizations drawn from common sense everyday experience. So for example, things that are in motion will stop. They run out. Things on Earth move in straight lines. Things up there move in what looks like circular orbits. Okay. So there's a, a range of common sense observations. If you drop something, if you drop the feather and you drop the lead weight, the feather takes a long time to get to the ground. Okay. Common sense Aristotelian observations. Okay. Now as a consequence it was possible for Aristotle at least to arrive at a certain science understood as the outcome of logical demonstration. So for Aristotle the ideal is demonstrative science or demonstration. Now post-Reformation critics would to argue that that was all very well for a pagan philosopher who'd known nothing about the primeval events that had taken place in the Garden of Eden and the fall of the human race away from its original perfection. If the fall were taken seriously, they argued, it could no longer be assumed that our knowledge making apparatus, our senses and reason, would naturally and easily yield up knowledge. Moreover, the fallenness of the world itself had made it opaque human investigation. So Aristotle's ignorance of all of this led him into an uh, an unrealistic and uh, overoptimistic account of how a science could possibly work. So if we think about our Protestant reformers, and here we have John Calvin, uh, and you can read it for yourself, but you, you get the general picture. The philosophers didn't know about the corruption of human nature. Calvin has a famous doctrine of total depravity. And what he means by that is not so much that we're, well, we are hopelessly depraved for Calvin, but, but the, the, the totality here, the key to the totality is that it's not, just a moral, uh, it's not just a moral deficiency, it's a deficiency that extends to every aspect of the human person, including the cognitive and the sensory. Okay? So it's not just a moral fool. And he explicitly uh, distinguishes this view from medieval arguments about the fall that wanted to suggest that are essentially a moral, just a moral fall. And Luther. Luther will say um, something very similar. Okay. Um, so Luther's point is going to be that revealed truths make a crucial difference. And the, the scholastic era, the era of the preceding uh, Christian thinkers, was thinking that there was a common anthropology that pagans and Christians shared a common view of human nature. By, by virtue of which they could construct a kind of neutral natural philosophy, right? Assuming that there's a kind of neutral reason. This was the mistake, said the reformers. There is no such thing. And therefore, any science, any scientific claims, based on that assumption of a shared rationality are going to be mistaken. They're going to be wrong. Um, now, there's a much larger story here. Um, and and I'll, let me, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version Uh, that's to do with Protestant critiques of Aristotelian conceptions of virtue, which for them lay at the heart, if if you don't know the the story about Protestant critiques of justification, don't worry, But, but the Aristotelian conception of virtue for them lay at the heart of erroneous teachings about virtues, merits, justification and sanctification. Now more broadly then, a Protestant attack on Aristotelian teleology in the case of anthropology is that human beings is against the idea that human beings are knowledge oriented and when we extend this view to the natural world it results in an emptying out of the inherent powers and virtues from natural objects as well making space for this alternative conception of the laws of nature. Okay, So what I'm saying here is that there's a Protestant critique of virtues both in the moral sense and in the, in the physical world and the Protestants reformers were interested in the moral sense, because they didn't think you, you could be justified by the inherent virtues that you had. So the Protestant doctrine of justification was that you were justified in spite of the fact that you were still a nasty person. Right? They argued that the Catholic view, rightly or wrongly, was an Aristotelian view that said you can have infused virtues by virtue of which you're justified. So that, that's, a, that's a kind of... OK, that's, that's the theological side of the story. But interestingly, I think that they, they also wanted to, as a consequence of this, uh, you dismiss an Aristotelian teleological conception of the person and the world, and you also empty the world of its inherent virtues. And that makes possible a, laws of nature, a new laws of nature doctrine. But I want to get back to the epistemological point now, the point about knowledge. The critique of the classical approach to knowledge, it's not only evident in the Protestant reformers. We see it particularly in the Catholic world, those who are the most strongly influenced by the Augustinian tradition, and Pascal gives us a, a very good example of this Augustinian approach. Pascal, of course, quite a good experimentalist himself. And here, as it says there, they realized, here's the pagans, they real, if they realized the excellence of man, they didn't know his corruption, they avoided sloth, they sank into pride. Okay, these are the Aristotelians. If they recognized the infirmity of nature but didn't know its dignity, they became skeptics. So for, for Pascal, because they don't know the revealed tradition, they either become over-optimistic Aristotelians or they become complete skeptics, right? And here's the human condition. We have an image of truth, but we possess nothing but falsehood because we're equally incapable of absolute ignorance and certain knowledge. So obvious is it that we've fallen from a degree of perfection that we once had. So the, for Pascal, the balance is crucial. We have to have a knowledge of a past perfection and we know that to some degree that's theoretically possible. We also have a knowledge of our fallen condition and in the tension between what, knowing what we've lost... We have a motivation to a partial recovery of what we've lost, but a realization that that can never be accomplished in the way that Aristotle thought it could. That's the kind of balance that you get with a conception of a fall, where you have an idea of an original perfection, uh, an idea of a loss of that perfection, and the possibility of a redemptive process that can get you from the fallen state back to something like an original perfection where we could know stuff. Okay. Now I was going to say something about, I was going to complicate this with Descartes because th- th- there's, a, th- there's a, a median position for someone like Descartes who will talk about the natural light and so there tends to be an optimistic strand post-Reformation typically associated with Thomism that says after the fall the natural light was preserved and so we do have rational powers that enable us mathematically for example to delve into nature. So that's going to that's generate something like this crude distinction we often have between continental rationalism and British empiricism. Because the British are more strongly informed by the pessimistic view and people like Descartes are more optimistic because they think as a consequence of the fall, yeah it happened but we still preserved the natural light. And that's a fine theological point that that there's, again, a key theological point that there's discussion about and that there's an important difference on. Okay, but if you want to see how... We haven't got to experimentation yet, but it's, all of this is going to feed into uh, a, a kind of experimental approach to the world. That's the second ha- half of the, the Pascal quote. But, but here's Bacon to give you the idea. So what is Bacon aiming? Francis Bacon, obviously a key figure in the foundations of a new experimental approach to the natural world, what's he trying to establish? This is his question. Can we re-establish that great commerce between the mind of man and the nature of things? That's what, that's what we have to do. Can it be restored to its original perfect condition? Or if not, res- put into a better condition than the, the one it's presently in. Okay? So that now is the aim, put in the frame of this conception of the fall. And then again, you leave the human intellect alone, don't trust it. It's not to be trusted. And then the universe is like a labyrinth. So nature itself is hard to, to understand and interpret. And that's why we have only the uncertain light of sense. So in, in one sense, a kind of it looks like a pessimistic view, but you've still got the hope of a possible restoration of an original perfection. So it's, it's in the tension between those two that we get this view of an experimental natural philosophy. Okay. So Aristotle assumed that that correspondence was already there, but it's not. That's why, Aristotelian, that's why Aristotelianism doesn't work. Well, what's the solution? In essence, it's to do experiments. Okay? It's to do experiments. And so this, this religious story provides us with a legitimation of the process of experimental natural philosophy. Now I'm not suggesting that this is the only place you've got experiments. You've got experiments happening in in a whole variety of conditions. But what you've got here is an external justification for why experiments are the way to go. So here's Robert Hooke. Oh sorry, did I give you that bit of bacon? There it is, it's the commerce between the okay, you get the picture, I've mentioned that. Let's move on. Robert Hooke, first curator of experiments of the Royal Society, Uh, his famous book Micrographia. What does he say in the preface? Okay, here it is. This this lays the whole thing out. Every man from a derived corruption innate and born within him, okay, there it is, original sin and from his breeding and converse with men, is subject to slip into all sorts of errors. Okay? These being the dangers in the process of human reason, the remedies of them all can only proceed from the real, the mechanical and the experimental philosophy." Okay? So experimentation then is, uh, is the, the cure for the fall. Okay? It's the cure that enables us to start re-establishing those connections. Now, what are the distinctive features? I can't unpack the whole thing for you. What are the distinctive features of the new experimental philosophy, the new experimental approach of the 17th century, particularly these English natural philosophers, um, that look like they can be derived from this theological anthropology? Okay, here they are. First of all, uh, nature, it, it's, our, our knowledge is probabilistic rather than Uh, demonstrable. So the Aristotelian ideal was that you had a full causal explanation that you could demonstrate logically. That's gone. That's gone. You have knowledge of phenomena. You don't have knowledge of essences of things. In fact, things don't have essences anymore because they're they're simply uh, various particles in motion, in which case all you can think about is the appearance, the phenomena. Knowledge has got to be corporate. You've got to have lots of people working on it and it's cumulative and long-term. So you can't have the one person just thinking up brilliant ideas. You need to have lots of people repeating these experiments uh, and it needs to be a cumulative long-term project. Oh, it's done it again. So knowledge is experimental rather than speculative. Um, there's a lot that could be said about this but experiment is a kind of synonym, experience and experiment are, are, are synonymous and the, 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 there was a standard opposition in the 17th century between experimental knowing and speculative knowing so poor old Descartes was always accused of being speculative right and the English experimental tradition wanted to contrast themselves with that but speculation was not the way to arrive at knowledge. The fallen senses need to be augmented by instrumentation, so there's a justification for the use of the microscope and the telescope. And it's significant that that passage from uh, Robert Hooke comes in the preface to his famous Micrographia, <coughs> which is all of those beautiful drawings of, uh, done, done of objects under the microscope. Fallen nature needs to be investigated aggressively and intrusively uh, because it resists, as a, in its fallen condition, the natural world resists our attempts to know it. So there are two aspects to the loss of two aspects to the loss of the uh, natural um, union of the mind with the natural world. Like the nature itself has fallen as well as, as us. And so you know um Sorry, I've got so, so summing it up then that the method is conceived as a kind of therapist experimental method is a kind of therapeutic regimen <coughs> applied to overcome the inherent limitation of reason and the senses. So if we return to, to Jerry Coyne's question about why does it take Christianity so long if it if it's plays a significant role, um, simply put, going I'm not suggesting going back to the blockage theory of why science appears, but Aristotelianism was actually responsible for the stagnant phase in a sense, and the Protestant Reformation provides an occasion for a mobilisation of a number of arguments against this Aristotelian conception that are then, then subsequently taken up not merely by Protestants but of course by Catholics as well. Okay, So the last thing I want to talk about is, is, is this question about the social and moral legitimation of science which is to say it's not merely enough to get the methods and say why do we value this activity? Why do we value it? Why do we value what it, what it has to give us? And again there's a religious story about that. Um, I, I should say of course that the rise of science is seriously overdetermined, and I'm only giving you an account of some of the factors that are relevant, OK? So I'm not, not wanting to say that these, these factors the whole story. So in this last section, I come to the question of why modern science has taken the, take the particular form it does, um, why it's become consolidated as a central feature of our culture and why we value it. It may seem obvious to us that science generates material benefits and that we value the material benefits that science delivers. But we can also ask in turn why we should value these material benefits over other things. And there might be other things that a society could value as much as the material benefits that science can deliver. So there's an opportunity cost in backing science is what I'm saying. Moreover, it's also significant that experimental science in its early stages, they didn't actually deliver any material benefits. It was commonly derided as being useless. As is important discussion in the 17th century about the the uselessness of natural philosophy. And indeed, the justifications for its pursuit tended to be in terms of what it could do for for morality. But for those of you who are familiar with Jonathan Swift's Grand Academy of Legado, that's a direct satire on the Royal Society and its experimental activities. And Jonathan Swift was by no means the only person um, who thought that these guys were wasting their time. Now, we get some perspective on this question of the legitimacy of of science as an activity. We consider a 19th century assessment of what it was that Bacon achieved uh, when he putatively put uh, modern science on the right track. So here's Macaulay, and he says, here's his judgment. Two words form the key to the Baconian doctrine, utility, usefulness, and progress. The ancient philosophy disdained to be useful, it was content to be stationary, it dealt with theories of moral perfection. It couldn't condescend to the humble office of ministering to the comfort of human beings. Now, this really sums it up quite well, I think, that philosophy in the past, and this included philosophy up to the 17th century, had focused on the task of the moral formation of the individual. The 17th century witnesses, witnesses a, quite, a quite radical shift from this individualised conception of philosophy and natural philosophy to a corporate utilitarian understanding of the purpose of knowledge. So knowledge is not about personal formation. It's about a generation of material benefits. Um, and that's the purpose of knowledge. So here's Bacon, for example. Is that Bacon? Yes, it is. Um, knowledge is to be sought not for the quiet of resolution, or a rest- but for a restitution and reinvesting in great part of man to the sovereignty and power that he had in his first state of the creation. Okay? So there again we have the idea of restoration of original perfection but Bacon is wanting to say this material uh, this material process, uh, these material benefits, this is what we need to be aiming for, not the moral perfection of the individual. Okay. Now it's not obvious to me that that's the way necessarily you should go but that's the way we've tended to think about it. So uh, Bacon's project then as he conceives it is not just a crass materialistic utilitarianism, but one that's explicitly framed as an attempt to restore a prelapsarian control over the natural world. And he provides a fuller statement of this uh, in, in uh, the, the closing paragraphs of his new organon. And there it is. Again, we come back to this theme of the fall. Man by the fall fell from his state of innocency and his dominion over the creation Both of these losses can in this life be in some part repaired, the former by religion and faith, the latter by arts and sciences, and again the creation itself under a curse, etc. etc. But now by various labours can be subdued to the supplying of man with bread, that is to the uses of human life. Now this is an interesting prioritization of material welfare over what we might say the religion and faith, the spiritual welfare. Okay? And that then tends to be the path that's followed. So this is the theme that we find repeatedly. Uh, in 17th century justifications for the pursuit of this new science or this new natural philosophy. It receives its social legitimation by being harnessed to this religious goal of a restoration or this redemptive process. The new science is an integral part of a redemptive exercise aimed at a re-establishment of a lost dominion over nature. Its capacity to realize this religious goal is part of what provides experimental science with the impetus that will ensure its consolidation into the heart of Western society. This Baconian justification will also become uh, closely allied with another religious goal, and that's the physico-theological project of exploring divine design in the natural world. we can see that in these guys, Boyle and Newton, the pursuit of uh, scientific knowledge to show the existence, uh, to show the wisdom and power of God. For, much, for the 18th and much of the 19th century, the quest to discover divine design in the natural world both motivated scientific inquiry and gave it a necessary religious and social legitimacy. So a major part of the story of the early success of experimental science is its capacity to harness religious values to ensure its legitimation. So let me just wrap things up. Now, so, in conclusion then, science takes on a distinctive shape in the early modern West and it becomes prominent in an unprecedented way and in a way that's not paralleled in any other culture. It's clear, to me at least, that religious considerations played a key role in this development uh, and that that these were necessary conditions for the emergence and for the consolidation of modern science. As I noted at the outset, While it's often thought that modern science emerges by asserting its independence from religion, the trend is very much in the other direction. And while there are other variables that are significant too, the story of much 17th century science is the story of the forging of a more intimate relationship between science and religion than anything that had existed before. But there are some interesting ironies here. From the 19th century onward, science became self-justifying as the religious reasons that lay behind its initial philanthropic goals, that's Bacon's phrase, philanthropic goals, faded away. Moreover, the physico-theological union between science and religion, in which the idea of organismic design played a central role, suffered a significant setback with the emergence of the idea of evolution by natural selection. And last but not least, The flattening of causality to a single plane, we see see this in the 17th century, which is motivated by the new theological idea of divinely authored laws of nature, made it possible for a remarkable reversal to take place in the 19th century, when the laws of nature came to be understood as brute features of the universe, and, and ironically, as incompatible with divine activity in the world. Taken together, then, we might say that the religious contribution to the rise of modern science was something of a mixed blessing for religion itself. For in these vital contributions in to early modernity, we also see the presentiments of contemporary conflicts between science and religion. Thank you.